Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. Today, I want to talk about something that really is a building message for your family. Uh, the, The title of my message today is In Christ in the Home in Christ in the home. And um, we're walking through the book of Ephesians together over the summer. And he's going to go into the instructions for Christian households. And uh, as I was reading this this week, a a couple of thoughts came to my mind. First is this is a difficult topic that we're going to talk about today. Okay. And so we're, we're going to dive into it. We're, we're going to talk about why it's kind of awkward. My, my, my kids have been teaching me a word, cringy. Do we have any, y'all, y'all know the word cringy? So we were watching one of those cheesy Hallmark movies that was family friendly. And there was a scene that was really cheesy. And my son was like, this is so cringy right now. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's a great word. It's cringy. Like there's things in this passage that are a little bit cringy. We're going to be really honest about what's cringy about it. But then we're going to try to move deeper into the passage to understand what is it that he's really saying. Before we do that, I want to just give us a brief, uh, some tips on how do you handle difficult passages? Because if you're a person who reads the Bible, which I hope you do, okay, if you read the Bible and you're honest about what you're reading, there are going to be things that you bump up against and you're like, ah, that's hard for me. Like, I'm cool with Jesus and Savior and salvation and dying for my sins, but but this part, like, I I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with this, okay? Or you might have somebody who is... Uh, seeking out things about Christianity and they're asking you questions and they're like, but what about this? And you're kind of like, ah, I don't know what to say about that, right? Or maybe you get like an angry atheist and he's just like, I don't believe in this misogynistic, bigoted, you know, God of the Bible because I evolved from a monkey and I'm too smart to believe in that, Right? And you're like all nervous, like, I don't know, I don't know what to say, you know? Because there are passages that are difficult, and and we have to understand what does it mean, and what does it really say? So that's what we're going to do today. I want to give you a few tips. The first one is this, how to deal with difficult passages is to be intellectually honest, okay? You need to be intellectually honest honest. And what I mean is this, is that if you have a bias already, if you've already determined, here's what I think about this issue, and then you pick up your Bible and you're like, well, that doesn't match what I already think. And then you go to the, the good old Google and you just type in, you know, search it up and guess what you're going to find? Exactly what you're looking for. Really? I mean, any tough topic that you want to Google and find somebody who already thinks what you think and they've written a scholarly article that that affirms your bias, you can find it out there. It's all out there, okay? So 
you have to be careful with that. You need to understand, like, we do have biases that we already have, and we've already been formed and discipled by the culture and the world that we live in. So we just need to be honest about that and say, okay, I, I, here's what I've already thought about this, and, um, and so I, I need to be at least able to acknowledge that. There, there was... Um, an amazing uh, person named C.S. Lewis. Most of you know him, know his books um, and, and his works. You've seen movies about him. He was an atheist, and one of his questions was, how could this ancient religion be relevant to my present setting? And he coined a, a term called chronological snobbery. Have you ever heard that before, chronological snobbery? And here's, here's what he says it means. The uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. Simply put, that, that's old-timey stuff, that's old-fashioned, that's, that's old-timey religion, and we don't do that anymore, so that's not relevant to us any longer, right? It's, it's to say that whatever is old must be uh, no good, what, because we're so modern and we're so smart and all those kinds of things, right? That there's a chronological snobbery, like we turn our nose up at the old stuff. Okay, so we, we have to be careful about our biases, to be intellectually honest. The, the second thing, if you're dealing with a, a difficult passage, is to reaffirm the authority of God's word. This is so important. You need to reaffirm the authority of God's word. I just want to remind you, in Isaiah 40, he says that all humanity is grass and all its goodness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are, are like grass, meaning all the things of today, all the thoughts of our age, all the glory of mankind is like grass. And when the breath of God blows on it, it says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. It means that just as all the ideas of the past have come and gone, the ideas of today will come and they will go, but what will still remain is this, the word of God. Jesus himself said that, um, that the, uh, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but not one single stroke of a pen from the law will ever disappear until all these things are accomplished. Psalm 19 says the instruction of the Lord is perfect at renewing one's life. Psalm 119, I love this. How happy are those, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. 1 John 5 tells us that his commands are not a burden. And the most famous one, 2 Timothy 3 all scripture is inspired by God, right? It's God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have to reaffirm the authority of God's word whenever we're dealing with a difficult passage because whatever it says, we can't just say, meh. Like, we, we need to deal with it squarely. Look it straight in the eye. Reaffirm the authority of God's word. Lastly, when we're dealing with a hard passage, we need to beware of the ditches that we fall into, okay? So there's, there's I, I made a picture of this. If you go to that next slide. So that's our cool little Renaissance Church Bronco. 
if you want to donate one to the church, I would drive that to the glory of God, okay? It would be so cool. All right, so that's us in our cute little Bronco, right, with the lift kit. I mean, it's not cute. It's manly. And we're trying to keep it between the lines. We're trying to interpret difficult passages. And one of the, the ditches that we can fall into is when we get to something in the Bible and we can say, well, it's all just cultural. That's one error to say that all of it's cultural. So all that stuff, it applied to them at that moment, but none of it applies to us anymore because we're in a different moment. Okay, it's all cultural. It's one error. The second ditch that we can fall into is that none of it is cultural, meaning that everything, it, it, it applies exactly like it did back then. And see, what happens is when we fall into those ditches, if you go to that next picture, this is, this is from New Zealand. I thought this was great. It's like literally they just went on both sides. If we fall into the, the ditch of none of it applies today, then it's a slippery slope, and all of a sudden, you have no real faith, no real foundation to your belief in Jesus. You might have a tradition, but you don't have a living faith anymore. On the second side, right, that, that none of it is cultural, what we miss is we miss the goodness of God and the specific instruction that he gave to the people at that time. There's actually something really, really beautiful about the word, and you're missing the goodness of God in it. So today, as we deal with a difficult passage, let's be honest, let's reaffirm the authority of God's word, and let's beware of the ditches. Y'all with me? You ready? Okay, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, Paul giving instructions to Christian households. Here's what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. And then he quotes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Deep breath. Everyone okay? We're going to talk about, we're going to, we're going to dive into it. Let's go a little bit further. He's going to talk about two other parts of the household. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 
Verse five, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's word. So I told you we're going to dive into a difficult passage, all right? So we're going to deal with the aspects of this uh, passage. And again, Paul is giving some instructions to the typical household at that time. This would have been the common uh, household for them uh, in the Roman world, husbands, wives, children, and also household servants or slaves. This would have been the people that the gospel is reaching, so he's going to speak to them specifically about their household. And he's going to apply the principles of submission and authority to them. So before we dive into the cringy part, did you know that you can have a Guinness Book of World Records crosswall in your house? and not have a Christian household? Did you know that you could have a God bless you mat on the front of your door and then a plaque over it when you walk in that says, God bless all who enter this house. And then you can have a via con Dio sign on the way out of the house and still not have a Christian household. Did you know that? See, what, what Paul gives them is not so much about all that kind of stuff, right? You know, we, we love those kinds of things. You could have Kenny G playing the hymns of old in the background of your house all day, every day, and still not have a Christian household. Because those things are wonderful. But what he gives them are specific instructions about our relationships, our relationships. So let's be really candid about what is cringy in these passages. Words like submission, authority, and headship are cringy words in our culture, right? And then, then he talks about slavery, and it's like, it's like he just put all the red buttons for us that say, do not push, do not push, do not push, right? And he just pushes all the buttons like in three paragraphs, right? And we're like, oh my gosh, and this is why, honestly, a lot of pastors don't talk about these things because it's awkward. So these words are cringy, right? These, the labels start flying of bigotry and misogyny and patriarchy. We have all the cultural baggage that's associated with these terms. And what's, I think, difficult for us is that they're asymmetrical, Meaning that he says, wives, submit to your husbands, but he doesn't follow it up and say, now husbands, submit to your wives. Or he says, parents, right, you, you're to lead your, your children. Your children are to obey you, but parents, you're not to obey your children. 
or slaves. I, I want you to obey your earthly masters, but it never says to the masters, obey your slaves. So it's asymmetrical, and in our culture of equality and individual rights, like that's just like not cool with us, right, as Americans. This is difficult for us. These seem antithetical to our values, and I think that we need to be careful that we don't jump to a conclusion about who God is or what he's like in these instructions. We have painful stories and experiences of abuses of authority or abuses of submission. We have the harm or the pain of abdication of responsibility, people that were supposed to be those things in your life that abdicated their responsibility towards you and there's something in you that's just wounded when we talk about stuff like this. And I understand that. I totally understand that. And not only do we have all that, but the Bible says we also have this thing in us called a sin nature. In Romans 8, 7, here's what Paul says about it. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. And all these things conspire against us to keep us from fully understanding what Paul's saying. And it makes us veer off into the ditches when we look at what it means for us to be in Christ in our home. So let's just untangle ourselves from all that stuff this morning, and let's try to see these instructions with clear eyes. And I just want to draw out the the principles of what Paul is saying. And here's the first one is this. To be in Christ, in our homes, is to embrace countercultural submission. That's where he begins. Wives, submit to your husbands. That he uses a Greek word that would be similar to the word submit, but slightly different, and it means obey. And he says, children, obey your parents. And then he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. So he uses this same kind of similar word to talk about this countercultural submission. And I think it's important for us to first just think about what in the world does that word submit mean? So what I did is I I have a slide, I think, for this. And this is the, um, if you were to go look online and you're going to find like the original Greek word and here's what that Greek word means, like this is what you're going to find. It says to, to arrange under, to subordinate, to subject oneself or obey, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice to obey or be subject, a voluntary self-yielding. It was a Greek military term that meant to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. So the troops are submitted to their leader, but in a non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, or assuming responsibility in carrying a burden to submit. And I think that, that um, a voluntary attitude of giving in. A voluntary self-yielding is probably the best definition for us of what does it mean to submit. Uh, I had a a friend who was describing this word and I thought the way that he described it was so helpful. He said, you know, when you're learning to drive, 
Like I have a son who's learning to drive right now and you get to a yield sign and a yield sign is different than a stop sign. A stop sign is like, you're gonna stop no matter what because the sign says to stop, right? But a yield sign is different because you're gonna slow down, you're gonna look and see if anyone's coming and if they're not, you're just gonna keep going, right? So when we talk about a voluntary self-yielding, what we're talking about is a, a wife looking to her husband and saying, are we good here? Good, yep, yep, okay, I'm gonna keep going, okay? It's a voluntary self-yielding to submit. Now, would you agree that this is a countercultural thing for us today? Yeah? How many of you husbands, when your wife is having a hard time, or you just want to, you know, encourage her in her faith, and you're thinking, what Bible verse should I quote to my wife today? <laughs> How many of you think of, wives, submit to your husbands and ask to the Lord? Have you tried that one lately, guys? Please send me an email and let me know how that went for you. Right? It's not the one you're going to reach for, I'm guessing. It's just is like, really? Submit? I mean, come on. This is 2023. It's countercultural today, but you know that it was countercultural then? That the Greco-Roman world was so permeated with the ideas of Plato and Socrates that they literally taught that wives were ontologically inferior to husbands, that women were inferior to men. That was the prevailing thought of the day. And their, uh, their instructions would have read something like this, oh, wives, obey your husbands as the citizens obey the state. Husbands, rule your wives as the state rules its citizens. They would have taught that the strong should rule the weak. Right? They, they, they saw this as a gender class, like you're female, you're inferior, sorry, and a man should, should rule you. And so they, they had this power dynamic of male rulership, and Paul doesn't affirm the power dynamic. I, I don't know if you, if you saw that in the passage, but here's what he says. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are submit to their husbands in everything. And he keeps using these phrases, as to the Lord, in the Lord, right, unto the Lord. He's, he's using these phrases, and he's drawing on a different power dynamic, because what Paul is assuming He's assuming what the scriptures have always taught is that a, a man and a woman are equal before God. Genesis 1, for God created them male and female. In his image, he created them. That together, man and woman, they, they together are reflecting the image and the glory of God. And so Paul's writing to them, and what he does is he subverts the power dynamic of the day, counterculturally. And he says this, this is not a power dynamic of male power or manpower or male domination. Neither is it about girl power or female domination. He says, Christ is king. Christ is Lord. Man, you're not the Lord. 
Christ is Lord. Woman, you're not the Lord. Christ is Lord. As to the Lord. And he uses the parable as the church submits to Christ. And now some of you will say, oh, oh, praise God. That means then there really is no order or structure anymore, right? We can just sort of wash our hands of this troublesome passage and be like, whew, we're done with that one. Praise God. And you might even quote that we're to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, right? We're all to submit to one another. Which, by the way, is the verse right before the one that says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ and what he's doing. In fact, if you look at the original translation, the word submit is actually not even in verse 22. He doesn't say wives, submit. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord and then wives to your husbands. Meaning he's not going to say, you know, wash your hands of that whole like order in the house thing, right? Forget that because we're all to submit to one another. You know, he's applying submission specifically to wives submit to your husbands. So that argument doesn't work anymore. What he's doing is he, get, he gives specific application and he says there is an order, but it's not based upon superiority or inferiority anymore. That's, that's, the, that's the culture's way of doing it. But it's order in Christ. And friends, I'll be honest, I think we need order more than ever before. Really. We need order. Um, when people have no sense of structure or order, they kind of go a little bit crazy. Have you noticed that before? Do we have any teachers getting ready to go back to school right now? Yeah? Now, if you said, you know, your classroom, what do you guys want to do today? I have no idea what we're going to do today. What, what do you think we should do today, right? Guess what's going to happen? People are going to just go crazy and shoot each other, and, and it's going to be terrible, okay? Please don't do that, right? You're looking at me like, I would never do that. I would just never. I have to have order in my classroom, right? I, I have to, right? Because we need order. And honestly, in the last days, Jesus warned us that lawlessness was, will multiply, we're seeing that right now. Lawlessness is multiplying. There's a sense of there is no order. There is no law. And because of that, Jesus warns us that the love of many will grow cold. So we are to be salt and light. The church of Jesus, the followers of Christ, are to, to, to be uh, embracing countercultural submission in a way that is actually a light to the world, that preserves the world around us. Now, let's just clarify what submission is and what it isn't, because I think this is where we get like really weird about this. So when he says, wives submit to your husbands in everything, it is wives submitting to husbands, and it's a voluntary self-yielding. It isn't women submitting to all men everywhere. Did you hear what I just said? He's speaking very specifically to a wife and a husband. He's not saying, all women, when you go into the marketplace, submit to all the men. Okay? It is in everything. And what that means is that um, it isn't only yielding to your husband's leadership in the areas where he might know more than you. Okay? Or in the areas where you agree with him. But in the areas where you don't agree with him, you're like, eh, I'm going to do what I want to do. It literally is just meaning in all the areas of our life, we're going we're gonna to look to him as a leader and say, are we cool here? 
It isn't submitting to do what is evil, abusive, or sinful. And by the way, men, it is never your job to make sure that your wife submits to you. Amen? It's a great way to have a terrible marriage. Don't do that. It's not your job. This is her expression of her faith in the Lord when she voluntarily, voluntarily yields to you and you are never to demand it of her. It isn't that. It is respect. But it isn't inferiority. One of the greatest desires of a husband, ladies, you probably know this, is to be respected by his wife. We're really simple, ladies, you know this, right? It doesn't take a whole lot. It's just, if you just say like, hey, I like you, you have some good ideas. Yeah, you're, you're, you're doing a great job. Guess what, your husband is like, whoo, ready to go. Easy, simple, we're real simple. So it is an expression of a wife's devotion to Christ, but it isn't saying that your husband is equal to Christ. You're not to bow down and worship him, right? Jesus is Lord. So submission, counter-cultural submission. He talks about parenting, and he says that our obedience, kids, is doing what our parents ask of us. Slaves. Now, what about slavery? That's a red button that you shouldn't push. Like, is Paul condoning slavery here? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not. What this shows us is that the gospel is for all people, meaning that in their strata, on the lowest place, people are coming to Jesus. They're hearing the gospel, and they're trying to figure out, like, what do I do now? And Paul's going to give him practical instructions about how to live as a follower of Christ. About 10% or more of Roman citizens were slaves. And um, unlike our American slavery that has a lot of baggage around it, Roman slaves could rise to positions of social significance. They could uh, take on various levels of social responsibility. They could work as doctors, nurses, tutors, government officials. They could manage household finances. They could earn their own money, and they could even purchase their own freedom. So it's different for them. But you know that sin has always been an issue, and of course there were evil slave owners, just like there have been in our past as a nation. And Paul is not condoning these practices, right? He never, ever would condone those things. He, he, to put it in a current context, he would never condone human trafficking or sex trafficking, ever. And he's not saying to someone in that kind of slavery that they are to yield themselves in that way, ever. It's evil. It's not godly authority or submission. And he's, again, what he's going to do is he's going to counterculturally subvert the power dynamic. And he says this, you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Meaning this, this uh, social power dynamic of the people who have means and the people who have no means and now they have to be enslaved to the people who have means. He said, you need to remember that both of your masters is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. So who's, who's the power in that, in that um, dynamic? It's Jesus. So we are to embrace countercultural 
submission. The second thing, to be in Christ in our homes is to embrace counter-cultural authority. Again, this is desperately needed. We desperately need authority in our lives. We are more prone to demand empathy and to reject authority. Okay, that's, that's just where we are as a culture. And I'm telling you that we actually need good, godly, countercultural authority in our day. And again, Paul talks about it amongst the three groups of the household. And he says this in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. And as you can imagine, lots of debates have raged around that word right there. What does it mean to be the head of the house? My grandfather is kind of a jokester. And whenever my grandma would say something and then he would say something, and when she looked away, he would look at me and goes, I'm the boss. <laughs> We're like, no, you're not. I mean, come on. Is that what it means? He walks around like, I'm the I'm the man, I'm the head, I'm the boss. No, that's not what he's talking about here. Head, it, it would mean source or authority. And here's how I think of it. In fact, this is how Paul's gonna illustrate it is that your head is the location of your brain, hopefully. <laughs> There's a brain in there, right? And for example, your, uh, your body is this interconnected thing in which you have these nerve endings all over you that are communicating to your head all the time, and your, your head is just making decisions about things. So if I were to go home and put a skillet on the oven and turn the heat on and come back in 10 minutes and then put my hand in the middle of that skillet, I'm going to get a, a message from the nerves in my fingers that say, like, this is really hot. It's burning. I sh you know, and my brain's going to say, hopefully very quickly, uh, you should take your hand off of the skillet, and I'm going to move my hand the skillet. Meaning this, that the head is always making decisions for the body, not at the expense of the body. Amen? That's what headship is. Or think of it this way, if you're like me and you're out of shape, but you know you should exercise, so you try, and then you, you're going to run a mile and like half a mile in, your body is like, let's just not today, right? But your mind is like, no, this is good for us. And I know the body, the, the nerve endings are telling me to stop, but we've got to push through because this is actually good for us. And it's not at the expense of the body to push through. Right? That's headship. It, it's simply the, the location of decisiveness. Uh, my wife likes this one a lot because every now and then we are making big decisions for our family and our life. And then she just looks at me and smiles and is like, well, I'll just do whatever you think we should do, honey. And I'm like, great. Thanks for nothing. Like, I don't want to make this decision. I don't know what to do. <laughs> right? It's headship. And this is important for us to understand. That authority does not mean authoritarianism ever. Jesus said it this way to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high position act as tyrants over them. Here's what he says, it must not be like that among you. 
On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to know what it means to be a leader or an authority in your home? It looks like that. Paul says it this way. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How did Jesus do that? He laid down his life. I'm just going to imagine that it's going to be a lot easier for your wife to yield to your decision making if you're laying down your life for her. She's going to see that and be like, I think I can trust him. I think I can trust him. So there's a way in which Paul addresses the two biggest issues with authority. The first biggest issue with authority is abuse of authority, and probably have all seen it in one form or another. And here's what Paul says in his instructions. He, he tells them, right, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which, which is this self-serving love. And if you know anything about abusive leadership, it's always self-serving, And so to empty ourselves, to lay down ourselves, to lay down our lives for the benefit of another person is actually to guard ourselves from the abuse of authority. If you have a self-giving love or a self-sacrificing love, you're not an abusive leader. It just doesn't happen. The the second biggest issue with authority is abdication. And I'm just going to say that I think that abdication of authority has done more harm than the abuse of authority in our lives that some of you have needed people to be the authority in your life, and they said, "Mm, I don't think I'm going to step up to that. I think it's done more harm than anything. And here's what he says to them. Love, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. Nobody hates his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it. Meaning this, you're not going to abdicate your responsibility when you're appetite is burning and you're like, it's dinner time and like, I'm going to go find something to eat. Or when you're really tired and you're going to take a nap, right? He says, just as you feed and care for your own body, you need to take care of your wife in that way. Meaning, do not abdicate your responsibility to care for her. So he guards us from the two biggest issues with authority, abuse and abdication through this good news of Jesus. He talks to parents. Now, parents, your children cannot obey you if you don't give them anything to obey. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, there's been a movement in the Christian world of grace-based parenting or need-based parenting. I understand where that comes from. Um, I, I would just caution you with this, is that you will never understand grace until you understand the law. When you break the law and then someone comes alongside and says, hey, you were wrong, and you're like, I know I was wrong, but they say, I'm going to actually absorb the punishment for you. So when you break the window, that was wrong, you need to go tell them, now I'm going to go pay the window for you. So they're going to feel the wrongness of it, but then you're going to step in, you're going to absorb the punishment, right, for them. That's actually grace-based parenting, but you will never just, you know, throw away all the rules because we're grace people. It's like, that's not the point of grace. You will never understand it without understanding the law. So we have to give them something to obey. Um, 
he says that we are to teach them to obey because, and this is so important, the training ground for our kids to obey the Lord is to obey us. Parents, our jobs is to have children that don't wanna do things and actually to make sure that they do them, right? Because there are gonna be times in their life when they're gonna want to do their own thing and they're gonna have that feeling inside like, oh, I know the Lord doesn't want me to do that, but I, sh- I-, I wanna do this. And they-, well, they need the training from us as parents to say like, okay, okay, I know how to deny myself and do the right thing. So it's in parenting as well. So we have to embrace countercultural submission and countercultural authority. Lastly, this is really important. Your willingness to embrace godly authority and submission determines your trustworthiness. I was thinking about these, these last verses where he says in uh, chapter 6, verse 7, he's talking to slaves and masters, and he says to the slaves, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Wow. Verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. And I was thinking about this sort of, this word to people that are in slavery and he's saying to them, look, there's no favoritism with God, meaning your status and your wealth has nothing to do with God's opinion of you. He, he, he could care less. But what God cares about is our obedience. And there's actually a reward for being obedient. He will receive this back from the Lord. He, in each instance, uses the phrase, as to the Lord, in the Lord, or as you would Christ. And he keeps pointing us back to the ultimate authority and submission to Christ. And here's what I want to say is you should not violate the one who is your ultimate authority by refusing his instructions for your earthly authorities. Does that make sense? Um, in my life, in church leadership, I've had the, the blessing of being around lots and lots of leaders over the years. And I've learned that the best leaders are the ones who learn to be led first. I don't know if you've noticed that. The best leaders are the ones who learn to be led first, right? And the scariest leaders are the ones who are actually never, have never been able to be led before. They, they were not able to submit themselves to any other person. Those are the scariest leaders on the planet. And, and it's like our children. When you have a disobedient child that's always like doing something that you're, they're not supposed to do, they're always sneaking around, they're always breaking your, your, you know, your rules, right? And the thing is, with that child, they're, they're going to have more restrictions, aren't they, as a parent? You're like, you're not getting a cell phone until you're 35, right? And you will not drive until you're 27 because, like, I don't know what you're going to (laughs) do. But kids, if you want, like, all the freedoms in the world, here's what you do. Just obey your parents. You know what happens? Trust grows. And when we 
are people who submit ourselves appropriately to the earthly authorities that God's put into our life, guess what happens? Trust grows. If we are using authority in the way that God has called us to use authority, we're not going to abuse it, we're not going to abdicate it, guess what happens? Trust grows. And trust is the bedrock of all relationships. Your marriage gets better. Your household gets better. Your family gets better. All of a sudden, you're actually building something that's good and it's godly. And guess what? If you will actually do these things, God's going to entrust more to you. He just will. Because you're a trusted person. So your willingness to embrace godly authority and submission determines your trustworthiness. But friends, um, we'll never be able to do this, ever. We'll never be able to appropriately submit ourselves without the one who literally knelt in a garden and sweated drops of blood and says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. We'll never be able to lead appropriately and lovingly without the one who loved his bride so much that he laid down his life for her, who literally broke his body to serve her. Friends, we will never, ever be able to do this if we are not looking to Jesus first. Ask to the Lord, in the Lord, unto the Lord. We are in Christ, but may Christ be in us, in our homes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rind-church.org.